Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and Force Management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon and my good friend and co-host John Kaplan is off fishing today and hopefully he's able to dock the boat without any major issues. My guest today has had a stellar career in sales. Kevin started the first 10 years of his sales career at EMC, Brocade, and Thompson Financial, where he quickly rose from sales rep into sales leadership. After Thompson Financial, Kevin joined Data Domain, where he was the VP of sales for the Americas. And after four years at Data Domain, Kevin found himself back at EMC due to the acquisition of Data Domain by EMC, where Kevin spent the next two years as the VP for all backup and recovery systems at EMC. After EMC, Kevin Haverty joined ServiceNow, where he spent the last 12 years in multiple positions. Kevin has consistently grown at ServiceNow from the VP of Sales America's position to the Chief Revenue Officer, to Senior Advisor to the CEO, and currently as the Vice Chairman of the Global Public Sector. Kevin served in the U.S. Army National Guard and is a veteran of Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm in the Persian Gulf. He's a graduate of Providence College, and he's currently a board member at Sprinkler. Please help me welcome Kevin Haverty. Hey, Kevin, good to see you. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, Great to be here, John. Hey, I didn't know that you served in Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So first of all, thank you for your service. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Uh, it was a long time ago, but uh, it was my honor to uh, to be part of that. Well, last time I saw you, you were at a, we were at a New England Patriots game. So you still, uh, is, that, is that your favorite sport? And do you follow any other Boston teams? I follow all the Boston teams, um, you know, the major ones, Red Sox, Bruins, Celtics, Pats. Uh, but the NFL is my favorite sport. Um, it's the one sport where I could watch two teams that I don't even care about and be fully engaged watching the game. I, I just think NFL football is uh, is just hugely entertaining, and uh, and I'm hooked. Always have been. Yeah. I mean, the Celtics and the Bruins had some hardships this year, huh? getting that deep and then losing. So. Yeah. You know, I was at game six in, uh, in Miami against the Heat when the Celtics won as time was running out or appeared to have run out. Right. Uh, and that was that was, had to be one of the most thrilling sports events I've ever been to. But losing game seven kind of, you know, washes away the memory. So yeah. now it's just kind of licking our wounds. So we'll, we'll get them next year. Yeah. Hey, Kevin, you have a ton of sales experience, sales leadership experience, and you've been in sales leadership roles, you know, at different levels for the last 20 years. Let's talk a little bit about the things you needed to learn as you grew through the leadership ranks. like. Let's start, like, what did you really have to learn about you? Like, as leaders, we always have to do a lot of self-reflection. Is 
when you think back, what is maybe one of the two things you had to learn about you? Yeah, that's a great question, John. Um, I would tell you that what I learned about me in the in the process as it as it pertains to being a sales leader is you kind of have to find your own voice. Um, you know, we all came up through the ranks and there were leaders who we admired um, or didn't admire for that uh, for that matter. And uh, if you're a new leader and you're trying to emulate somebody else and it's not how you roll, uh, it doesn't come across as authentic. And so I, I felt like for me in my leadership journey, when I kind of hit my stride was when I was being myself um, and I was doing the good tenets of leadership and, and uh, pretending to be somebody else uh, never really rings true for your team or yourself makes you uncomfortable. Uh, so I, I kind of just learned, you know, just being me was, was good. And, you know, just get behind that and don't try to pretend you're someone else. Don't try to emulate somebody else. You can, you can take on their traits, right. And learn from them, but you have to do it in your own voice. And then, then you don't have to pretend. And, and, uh, that takes a lot of the energy that you're putting on trying to tend you're someone else. And it puts it toward, you know, the parts of the job where you really need your energy. So, uh, it's that whole kind of authentic leadership, um, style takes some self-confidence to build that. But once you do, uh, I think that's when you really hit your stride. Yeah. And you can, you feel uncomfortable, as you said, in it when you're not authentic, but the people around you also feel it. They can sense that you're not really being yourself and you've seen it. I've seen it in other leaders. And like you said, it's not until you act like yourself and are who you are that it's authentic and the other people can feel it. And then you, then you can be a true leader. Totally. And you don't have to give it much thought because it is, you know, it is your nature. It is who you are. Uh, And, and, you know, look, there's also the part, John, about, you know, continuing to improve yourself. Right. So it doesn't mean that you can't add skills to what you have, but, you know, like I said, you, you have to find a way to do it in a natural way where, you know, you're not changing who you are. You're just kind of improving who you are. Yeah, like and like you said, you can look at other people and say, oh, you know, he does that really good and she does that very well. And I'd like to be able to develop those skills also. So I can do that, but I can still be myself, right? Right. And what about some of those skills that you had to learn as you went from first line manager to second line manager to third line manager all the way up to CRO? Yeah. Can you think back on some of the skills that you thought – geez, if I'm really going to make it at this level, like I got to learn how to really do this a lot better. Yeah. So for me, um, once I once I figured out how to be a good first line manager, um, w- one of the things that I had to develop was executive presence. So like it was one thing being the frontline sales manager with my team. Um, and I felt like uh, I had high confidence in that and knew how to do that because I had done that sales rep role. So managing sales reps was a little bit more natural. Now, walking into a room uh, with a customer or prospect with an executive who's many layers up, that felt far away from me for a while in the early years. So I felt like I'm a lot closer to a rep than I am to a CIO. And, uh, you know, it took me a while to kind of get that executive presence. And it's 
It's really just a matter of um, having the confidence in yourself that you know your business way better than that executive who's in the room knows your business. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's a matter of you don't have to know everything. You don't have to be an expert on every single part of the business. You just have to know your domain. And if you know your domain, uh, that'll carry the day for you. And so uh, my executive presence was a journey for me. And um, and that was a big breakout. Once I once I kind of got the swagger to um, kind of handle that and the, and the self-confidence to kind of feel like I had a seat at that table and I earned it. Um, that's another, that's another big development area that, um, really helps you, especially as you go up the ranks, you know, second line leader, third line leader. Now, you know, when you're in that room, you're expected to carry the day. Um, and, and, uh, and so, you know, I, I feel like, uh, it was a development area, but, uh, once I kind of, once I kind of got there, um, you know, there was no, there was no looking back. So Kevin, executive presence, that's, that's something that, um, Everybody wants, everybody struggles that as they go up. And you said like you needed to gain the confidence about that and about your domain. So how did you gain that confidence in your domain? Did you go back and start to study more about your domain and how the products are used by customers so that you could be more confident? How did you gain that confidence? You can't just tell yourself, I'm going to be more confident. That's part of it, but... (laughs) This <laughs> may be the first step, but uh, but yeah, there, there's there's uh, there's more to it. Yeah. So one one big thing is uh, business acumen. So you know, back you know, I'm I'm a little older than some of the people listening to this podcast, right? But back in my day, it was like reading the Wall Street Journal in the morning. It was yeah. reading Fortune magazine. It was being kind of plugged into what was going on in the world economy, what was going on in the industries I was selling to. And, and just having a little bit of business context, like I said, not being an expert, nobody expects you to walk in their office and, and you know, be some type of meet the press persona. Uh, but you should know what's going on out there in the world. You should know what the hot trends are. And you should be able to have um, a business conversation about any broad topic and have a little bit of confidence in it. So, um, I, you know, I knew sales and I always knew my product. You know, I was a I was a sales rep who took the time to learn the product. Even though I wasn't a quote-unquote techie, uh, I wanted to understand the product. I wanted to leverage my engineer to help me, right, and do their job. But I also didn't want to be the person who was kind of in a fog when they were talking about how the technology worked and the, and the value it was bringing. So I leaned in heavy on my particular domain expertise, and then I built my business acumen by just doing those things that I was talking about, which is which is really just kind of leaning into you know whatever publications are uh, are telling you what's going on in the world, and and that for me helped me kind of bridge that gap from being a seller or a frontline manager to being a business person who you know can carry the day in, in the uh, in the executive suite. Yeah, and being that business person, what I found was I had to speak their language. Like I couldn't speak the sales language and my product language. What I had to do was take my product language and my sales language and translate that into the language that they spoke. And to your point, like I I used to read the Wall Street Journal like every day. And a lot of it I really didn't understand. But after years and years of reading it, you know, I really started to understand those topics. And then when you get in that room to have executive presence, you have to be able to speak that same language that those executives speak. Otherwise, they realize 
you know, this guy doesn't really belong here. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, a quick story comes to mind as you're saying that, right? I, I recall being a, um, a frontline manager and I was living in Florida in those days and we were selling to a bank and they, they were buying a lot of our stuff. And um, my, my rep and I uh, ended up literally in an elevator. So talk about an elevator pitch coming down an elevator um, and the CFO steps in and he sees our logo on our Jersey, whatever it said, EMC. And, and uh, he goes, Oh, EMC. He's like, I, um, I buy a lot of your stuff. I sign the purchase orders. What do you, what do you guys do? Like this guy was literally just signing purchase orders because the CIO made a good case, but he didn't really understand what he was buying. And there was our chance. And um, I remember our, our rep started explaining what we did and he was throwing a lot of four letter acronyms and three letter acronyms that were like our product <laughs> names. Right. And so he's yeah. like, Oh, we, we saw you SRDF and uh, you know, then you take the SRDF and you do this, <laughs> you do that with it. And I could see the guy just fog over. And, uh, and so I was trying to pivot a, a little and I said to him, I go, do you, do you understand what these, uh, what these things are? And he's like, well, I understand the alphabet. Uh, <laughs> so that was his give yeah. that like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Right. And so I was able to um, translate it to a language that a CFO would understand. And, you know, I just, I just quickly, you know, explain like, Hey, we're taking your data from the local data center here. We're moving it to one that's geographically dispersed from here to protect you from, you know, the elements in case a hurricane comes so that you guys don't lose access to your data. And that's worth a lot to the business. And, and you know, he, he appreciated it. It was a much more simple conversation. It was a much more easier conversation to have. Um, and it was, it was really the more appropriate way to talk to a CFO uh, because we're not talking to, you know, uh, uh, a hands-on like person in IT. So that kind of context switching when you're talking to, um, you know, an executive versus a technical person versus a CIO, it, it's just kind of speaking the appropriate language, use the words that they're going to understand. And, uh, you know, sometimes people say the higher you go, the less they know. So you even actually have to simplify it. Yes. Put it in real simple business terms, and uh, and that's that's part of the fun of it. When you when you when you get good at being able to um, you know know when to pivot and know what language to use, you kind of feel like you're uh, you know you're getting it done. Yeah, well, we always talk about the fact that if you don't use that you know language that they use, and they start to as you explain, they start to plays over then what's going to happen is you get relegated to who you sound like. So I can remember the first couple of times that it's happened to me when I was making sales calls with people and they were like, okay, they ended the meeting and they basically dealt, you know, relegated us three or four levels down. Right. That's when you, you come to the realization, like I have to have that executive presence, as you said, and I have to be able to learn that language. Otherwise I'm going to, I'm never going to be able to be in these meetings. Yes. So important. Yeah. What about, you know, you as you climb the ladder in sales leadership, more and more things get thrown on your plate and you have to learn how to prioritize what's important, what has to be done now, you know, what can wait, but it's still kind of important. It's just not urgent. Yeah. How did you learn how to prioritize as you went up the ladder? Yeah. That's a that's a great point. You know, um, you learn out of necessity because um, when you when you get a bigger job, 
um, you know, you can work 24 hours a day and not get everything done that could get done. So it's not a matter of, okay, I'm going to work harder. Um, you know, I'm going to put in more hours. I'm going to try more. You know, when you're putting in as many hours as you can handle and you're trying as hard as you can try, that's all you can do. So now it's a matter of prioritizing and deciding what you're going to work on and then what you're going to uh, not work on or delegate or whatever else. So something that worked for me, um, I'm actually in my Waltham office right now. I have a whiteboard and at the top of the whiteboard, it says, help me go faster. And um, when people would come into my office and, you know, have something for me, but in my mind, it wasn't passing that help me go faster test. It was, it was kind of going into the, you're slowing me down test. I would point at that whiteboard and I would go, listen, I appreciate what you're trying to do here, but I need to go faster. And this, although it's interesting, is slowing me down. So, you know, it it depended on what it was. I would have to say, we're not going to do it, or I need you to work with so-and-so on that. And, uh, and that kind of gave me the clarity. The, The other thing, John, is I used to I used to have an expression, um, you know, at ServiceNow, we use a metric internally called net new ACV. Some companies are all about, you know, ARR. We we, we were net new ACV. And And for people that don't know, that's the that's the bookings or revenues minus the churn, right? That's net. That's right. Yeah. It's the it's the incremental spend less any down sales or or deep book. So net new ACV. And um, and I would say to people, I'm the net new ACV guy. Like my job is to bring in the net new ACV. So if we're not talking about something that directionally leads to more net new ACV, then I'm probably the wrong person. You should be working with somebody else, right? So it was, now those are those are kind of extreme, help me go faster. I'm the net new ACV guy, but those were my true north. And a lot of things tied to those, customer satisfaction, you know, uh, getting to value quickly for customers, you know, making sure that, you know, we're, we're providing solutions that the customer believes are worth the spend, like all those things, uh, having a great sales kickoff, um, running a really effective sales club, and, and uh, making sure that the sales comp plan incents the right behavior. Like I could get behind those things in a big way because I was passionate about them because they were all about like my mission. And then when it was other things that were maybe important, but not necessarily tied to my true north, I would have to get them off my plate Make sure they got taken care of, but not tie up my own personal um, time with them. So, you know, it, whatever your true north is for your job, I think really understand it well. And then get into the habit of assessing quickly uh, whether or not what, what you're being asked to work on or what you're deciding to work on actually ties to your true north. Yeah, well, that's the flip side of basically what we were just talking about. When we go talk to executives as salespeople, we got to figure out what they're true north is, how they're measured. You were the net new ACV guy. So if I'm not putting things in terms of net new ACV, I'm not going to stay in Kevin's room for a long time. So that's where, you know, as salespeople, you have to learn that. That's the flip side of really what we were just talking about. That's yeah. And, 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 you know, um, pressures of the, of the number and the job and the number of hours you have really bring this kind of, uh, clarity to you. Like there, there's nothing like being in it and feeling that pressure. And and sometimes, you know, if you uh, like, look, I like to be nice to people and I, I don't like to, you know, I, I, I'm i a pleaser, right? So I, I never want to be 
uh, the guy who's like a real hardo. But like the pressures of the job will just force you there. And so, you know, you'll you'll find out like, hey, I got a 30 minute meeting like we're ending in 30 minutes. Like you you don't get five more topics or, you know, we don't get much more like you got to have clarity of thought to get your point across to an executive in those 30 minutes. Otherwise, they're going to end the meeting on you. And a lot of times they're going to go to their assistant and say, don't put that person on my calendar again, because they not only wasted my time, but they made me 10 minutes late for my next meeting. And now I'm in a jam for the rest of the day trying to play catch up. So, um, you know, a lot of these things that that I learned just kind of happened because I was in the pressure cooker and I had no choice. Well, you're in the pressure cooker and you have no choice because to add a little more color to that from my standpoint is when you're working 18 hour days and then you come in the next day and your to do list is as long as the one that you had the day before. You start to realize, like, I got to do some things differently here. Right. I am in this pressure cooker. I am on the line for net new ACV. And if I don't start doing things a little bit different, you know, I'm probably not going to have this job for a long time. So that's what you really mean by being in that pressure cooker and being forced into doing things differently. Right. That's right. That's right. It's, it's kind of like it either happens or, or right. You, you, you become inefficient in your job and, you know, you rotate out and, and somebody else comes in who, who has that skill set. So, uh, you know, nothing, nothing like, uh, you know, the real world forcing you to develop those skills. Right. And everybody doesn't have to have an hour on your calendar or half an hour on your calendar. They can get 15 minutes and get their point across also. Right. Totally. Yeah. That That's another that's another good uh, point, John, is like occasionally you have to kind of sit down and look at your calendar because you, you could have a standing monthly one on one on your calendar. That's just there because it's been there. And then you realize, does do I need, really need to be spending this time with this person? Do they really need to be spending the time with me? You know, so like occasionally there's a there's a, a case where you say, okay, this monthly one-on-one could be a quarterly. This quarterly one-on-one could go away, right? Um, I'm going to use that time for things that will help the business more, things that I should be leaning in more on. And I'm going to extract myself out of, out of parts of the business where either I don't add much value or, or um, you know, it's not worthy of my time. It, it's kind of like a, a two-way street where you know, the company's paying you a lot of money and they're putting you in this position. Um, you should be spending your time where you can really help the company. And uh, and that's not everywhere. Like nobody, nobody does everything well. So you also right. kind of have to um, know yourself well enough to know your strengths and weaknesses. And yeah, there's something to be said for trying to work on your weaknesses, but there's also something to be said for, you know, maybe somebody else should be doing those things that you're not as good at on behalf of you. And then that's when you start getting to this kind of productivity thing where, um, you know, you're doing what you're good at. You got other people who are good at those other things that you're not good at. And then that's when you get real good teams that can, uh, that kind of can flourish. Right. Right. Now, as, as you've grown from VP to, you know, through the levels up to C-level positions, how do you stay in touch with what's going on like I used to call it, what's going on in the street? Like, I really want to know what's going on with the reps that are, you know, doing the job every day. Like, if once I lose touch with that, then I feel like, you know, some of the companies that I was in, and then you saw some of these people that were totally out of touch with what was going on with the reps, then I thought, you know, you're just nothing more than a useless bureaucrat. So how did you stay in touch with what's going on with the with the reps? Yeah, so... 
Um, let's talk kind of pre-COVID and uh, and in COVID, right? So, okay. yeah. And and now I think we're post-COVID. Or at least I hope we are. Yeah. Um, so there's nothing like a trip with a local rep or you know a remote rep or or whatever. But on on all my business trips, John, I try to um, do three things: um, spend time with customers and prospects, spend time with partners, and spend time with employees. And so. You know, for me, the ride to the call um, with the rep, the windshield time, if you're in that type of market, uh, is really important. Not just getting to know that person, but like making them feel comfortable so that they'll shoot straight with you. Right. So then you're now getting candid feedback all the way from the front line, you know, and there's there's layers involved usually. So like that, that candid feedback is very valuable. Um, Same thing after the call, kind of the summary. So that's one thing. Um, then, you know, the town hall that you do in the office, um, like, Hey, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what's going on with the company and then we'll open it up for questions. And this is kind of like an ask me any, anything type of environment. And, uh, you know, yeah, you run the risk of somebody asking some crazy question that can derail the meeting, but, but it's worth that risk because someone's going to point something out that you didn't know, or that was really important that you should know. And then, you know, I also like, you know, um, like, let's have a dinner or let's go for a little happy hour and then let's just have some candid conversations with people. So it's, um, you know, it's almost like a politician going out and shaking hands with the constituents and getting right to the voter. You you know, you, you have to find ways to make yourself accessible and, and spend time with the people who are on the front line, spending time with the customers. Um, so, so travel is a big piece of it. Travel to the field. Um, during COVID, um, we tried to simulate that virtually as much as we could. Um, and we would do like virtual trips. Um, it's not as good. There's nothing like, you know, actually just shooting the breeze with somebody in real life. But, you know, when you have to, you have to, you know, we, we just tried to keep that communication open. And then at ServiceNow, We've always kind of had like um, informal open door policy, you know, like people, people, hey, if you if you have something you want to talk to me about, you can come talk to me about. Now, if somebody crosses the line and they're coming and talking to you about something that's not appropriate for them to be talking to you about, you know, you could just kind of coach them back and say, like, hey, is this really something you want to be talking to me about? Like, couldn't shouldn't you be handling this with your boss? Or, you know, if it's this type of issue, it's more like something you want to talk to your HR business partner. Um, but there's nothing like creating an environment where people feel like they can be candid. And if you're not receptive to receiving bad news, people aren't going to give you bad news. And guess what? You need to hear the bad news. Um, in fact, it's probably more important that you hear the bad news than, you know, people tell you the good news. So, um, you know, just be receptive to candid feedback, be receptive to hearing bad news and get yourself out there to be visible so that people feel like, um, you know, they can communicate with you because that, yeah, you, you don't want to be that executive who's in the ivory tower. Um, and, you know, people are telling you what you want to hear all the time. That's, that's a, a good way to get out of touch. And then you can't make good business decisions when you're out of touch. Yeah. That's amazing about bad news, Kevin. Cause I used to say, have a quote, I used to say bad news can't wait. Like I want to know about the bad news and I want to know about it now because when I'm, you you've experienced this too. Bad news travels very slowly uphill, right? So mm-hmm. when people like you and I hear just like one little inkling of bad news, 
we start to dig in because we're thinking, oh, if they're just mentioning the tip of the iceberg, there could be something big underneath here. And because it travels so slow uphill. Yeah. So that's so important. The other one that you mentioned, you know, windshield time. I thought that that was so powerful too. Like after a sales call, you hop in the car and you know what you don't want to see is everybody just get on their phone and they're checking messages and stuff. Like what could be more important than us discussing what just happened on that sales call? Right. Yeah. And you get to, to your point, you get to know the person a lot better too versus hopping on your phone. Cause you yeah, just and- like the six legged, you know, phone <laughs> sales call. Let's go yeah. talk about it. Yeah, you know, you know who um, role played that? Not role played that. Demonstrated that for me a long time ago um, when I was down in Florida. Joe Tucci came down as CEO of EMC, um, and he spent the day with us on sales calls. And um, you know, we were in Florida; the, the accounts were far apart, so there's uh, there's there's windshield time. And um, when Joe was um, between calls, if he was in the field with you know rep or manager going on calls. He wasn't on his phone back with corporate the whole time. He 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 carved out that day to be with the field, and he was kind of like, "I'm here with you guys, whatever you need." And and he was he was doing that kind of like, "I want to know what's going on in the field, and I don't want to be the person who's distracted the whole time, you know, on the phone back at corporate. I'm really here to kind of help move the ball with the customers and also find out, you know, what's going on out there." And I was thinking, okay, there's not a lot of people you know, busier than somebody running a huge company like that. And and if he can respect the windshield time to to get the most of it, then we all should be doing that. And so uh, it, it was a good lesson for me earlier in my career on how to, how to act when you're with the field, out in the field, uh, trying to make a difference. Yeah. So that's an example of you taking a piece of a role model and trying to incorporate that in, in one of your characteristics or one of your skills. Yeah. Yep. So let's talk about some of the characteristics of some of the best leaders that you've witnessed. Can you can you think what comes to mind quickly of some of the best leaders that you've seen, some of their their best characteristics? Yeah, so optimism is always one. Um, you know, uh, business is tough. There's always a lot of problems. Um, there's always a lot of stress um, because even if you're doing well, you're pushing harder to do better. If you're not doing well, you're pushing hard to, to, to just survive. So there's no easy street in business where, hey, everything's great. We're all just going to kind of cruise now. Uh, that's called complacency, right? And uh, all good leaders don't let complacency creep in. So I, I feel like the best leaders um, are realists, but they always lean into optimism. They always lean into positivity, and, um, you know, they're feeling the pressure. They're dealing with a lot of problems, too. But, you know, if they're going around with their head down, you know, complaining about everything or being negative, then they're setting an example for everybody else. And then the negativity kind of ro- rolls down. So it's not like false positivity, like whistling through the graveyard, like, hey, everything's perfect. But it's it's just like an optimism on like, we're going to find a way. We're going to get it done. This is what we do. You know, we're going to address the issues. Um, that's a that's a big one. Um, you know, if anybody hasn't read uh, Bill McDermott's book, uh, From the Corner Store to the Corner Office, I read that book before I even knew Bill. Um, and I was like, first off, okay, this guy's the CEO and he came up the ranks as a salesperson. So, you know, he has a similar journey as me. Um, I didn't 
get up the ranks to a CEO, but you know, right. his career had a similar path for a good long while. So it was very relevant to me. There's a lot of good leadership lessons in there. And then when he ended up becoming my boss at ServiceNow, it was such a coincidence. I was like, man, I read this guy's book and it was one of my favorite business books. And now I'm working for him. But he talks a lot about um, leadership tenants. Um, you know, leaderships never walk past a problem. Uh, leaders never walk past a problem, right? So, you know, you don't look the other way when you're a leader and you see a problem. You got you to gotta either address it yourself or, or escalate it up because it's not going to go away. Um, that's a big one that that Bill is always on message with. And um, the other big one has to do with trust. You know, you build trust. Trust is the ultimate human currency. Uh, it's earned by the drop and you can lose it in buckets if you're not careful. But, you know, having a trusting relationship um, with your customers, with your partners, with your people, you know, and, and that really just has to do with doing what you say you're going to do. And uh, when you have bad news, you know, dealing with it, don't, don't try to spin it or, or hide it or, or whatever else. So um, I saw uh, a lot of those traits from Bill, you know, I worked a long time uh, for Frank Slootman at Data Domain after we got acquired at EMC and over at ServiceNow. And, uh, you know, Frank is really good at focus um, at, you know, you know, Frank's not the, what are your five things person? He's like, what's the most important thing to you? What are you working on? And, you know, pushing to get it done faster. That's going to take you 30 days. How about tomorrow? It's like, well, tomorrow's not reasonable. How about a week? Okay, a week. So it's a heck of a lot better than 30 days, right? So, right. you know, a lot of those, those tenants um, working under Frank, um, I learned and I took some of them on in my own authentic personality. Um, I didn't try to act like I was him, but, you know, some of those things around focus and clarity and doing things faster, anybody can pick those things up. Um, and then, you know, the third leader who, who I'll mention um, from a CEO level, when John Donahoe was here, who, who's now the CEO of Nike, you know, John um, had a really nice way of um, optimism, uh, being gracious, being professional, and um, and really empowering people. Um, and that, you know, that was contagious. So, you know, in my journey in the last 12 years, I've had three different senior leaders who, um, you know, at their core, they're pretty similar. Um, their, their styles are a little different, but I learned a lot from each. And I think anybody can learn from whoever they're working for to pick up the positive traits and also observe some traits that they, they don't care for and just, you know, make a mental note. I'm not going to be the leader who, who does this, you know, or because I know how it makes me respond and I don't want that response to happen, uh, you know, to my people. I have to go back to one that you actually mentioned in an earlier part of this conversation that you do is, and I think a lot of great leaders do it, is they they don't have to be the smartest person in the room. So they figure out, this is what I'm really good at, which you mentioned earlier. I know that I'm not that good at this over here. I got somebody else that's better than that. I'm going to let them handle it because I don't have to act like I'm the smartest person in the room just because I'm the leader. And you've seen other the flip side of that, where there are some leaders that think that they always have to be the smartest person in the room. And, you know, I find that that's, that's very dangerous. Right. So. Yeah. And you know what the ultimate room is, is when 
all the people who are working for you are actually smarter than you because now you have like a powerhouse team. Like yes. talk about <laughs> talk exactly. about productivity. So uh, yeah, I I I always looked when I was hiring um, or promoting people. Like if I if I could find somebody um, who was so good, I'd be willing to work for them myself. Like that's the ultimate person who who you want working for you because it means they have headroom. It means they're going to make have good judgment when they're solving problems, and uh, and they're going to bring ideas to you, um, you know that that'll help you do your job. So it, it's it's yeah, God, I, I I'd hate to be in a room where uh, where I'm a leader and I'm the smartest person in the room because uh, that would be a team that that needed some uh, needed some needed some, some help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the other one that I found is um, they're usually very good listeners. Like they listen very carefully because again, they don't have to be the smartest person in the room. So they're really trying to understand, not trying to, you know, be the smartest person. So they're really good listeners. And because they're good listeners, they're, they have amazing perception. They can kind of perceive and feel like what the situation is. I don't know if you found that in some of the leaders that you've worked with too. I, I totally, I totally have, um, you know, uh, if you if you're ever in a meeting with Frank Slootman um, with a customer or or an employee, Frank has a way of like leaning forward and like tilting his head, and he's with his body language, he's showing the person like I'm listening to what you're saying, and he and he actually is concentrating and he's listening, and then he's giving a thoughtful answer that's that's very specific to what the person said. So if you're working for him, that's very empowering because you feel like, wow, he's really paying attention to my voice and, you know, and he cares and he's, and he's listening. Um, you know, we all know uh, in sales, how important listening is, you know, if, if we go back to these thing, things of like, how'd you learn what you learned and then how'd you apply it? I go all the way back to um, my army training when I was in ROTC. Um, we had a leader who said, you have two eyes and two ears and one mouth. Use them in proportion. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, okay, that's pretty straightforward, right? Uh, 80% listening and learning, uh, looking and listening, and, and 20% talking. And uh, he, his context was, you know, for a junior military officer. But the reality is that kind of applies all the way through the journey. Yeah, it does. And you were mentioning Frank Slootman. I've been in meetings with him, and he's not only a good listener, but uh, he simplifies things. He makes things, which I think great leaders do is they keep things very simple so that the people around them can understand it and know specifically what they want out of them. And I think Frank does a really good job of that. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and uh, that's another, that's another part of that. Like, Hey, is, I, I talked about executive presence um, earlier and, and having the confidence. Another kind of thing that I noticed, John was, you know, when you're in a room and somebody's saying something and uh, and it sounds confusing to you, there's this tendency to to feel like, gee, I'm, uh, you know, I don't know why I don't get it. And you might be a little bit embarrassed that you don't get it. So you pretend yeah. you get it. But like at some point, I, I remember being in a meeting and somebody was doing that and I was feeling that way. And I raised my hand and I was just kind of like, hold on, I, I'm kind of confused. I don't really understand what this means. And then like three other people were like, yeah, like what are we talking about here? And then you realize, okay, I've been at this long enough. If I'm confused, there are probably others who are confused too. So let's talk about that. And, and so like, let's get the person who's helping us 
with this message and tell them that it's confusing so they can help us to simplify it because confused people don't buy. Like if you have a customer and your product pitch is confusing them, you're not getting the deal. And, and so, you know, we, we all have a lot coming at us. And so we got to keep it simple. We got to, um, you know, just, just have the language be crisp and communicate to be understood. Don't communicate to sound sophisticated or to exactly. you know, use all the buzzwords. Yeah. We used to say, you know, you got to, you got to explain as if you're going to explain it to your grandmother. If you can't simplify it down to those types of terms, to explain it to somebody that has no idea about your technology or any type of technology, then it's too complex. Because what, to your point, I think you got to get people to grasp the concept of what you're going to talk about first. Then you can start to layer in some of these details. But, but I've been in the same meetings you've been in where people start like on level number five, and it sounds so complex. And I'm thinking, am I the only person in this room that doesn't understand what this guy's saying? Yeah. And, and, um, and I also, when I'm judging talent, I, I, <laughs> I have a big appreciation for somebody who's highly technical, who can describe things to a person who's not highly technical and have it land with them. Like that's a, that's a powerful ability. And when you can't do that, and you're in a, a role that requires that, that's that's trouble, right? And so I, I have this thing, John, where I'm like, if I ask somebody a question and I'm either more confused after they've answered it to me, or I wish they would just stop answering the question, then I'm like, okay, this person, um, you know, is is needs to develop this. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell them that, like, yeah. I need, I need like clarity. When you, when I ask you something complex, you need to simplify it for me. And, and, and that's not just for me, it's also for all the, you know, all the masses out there. And so, uh, you know, translating the complex, making it simple, enables people to make decisions. And that, that's what accelerates the flow of business. Now, let's talk about the flip side of some of the sales leaders or, or leaders that you've seen that failed. Is it only the flip side of some of the characteristics that we just named? Or does something else come to mind as to why many of those leaders fail there you, I mean, you know as you were coming up the ranks you've seen a lot of people you know do, be successful but you've also seen your fair share of failures yeah yeah i mean the the reason people fail is is situational you know it, it could be one thing or another for for whichever person um the biggest reason i've seen um sales leaders fail is um talent of their team uh, so th there's a lot of 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 issues to that or or layers to that but like the big one is not having your team fully staffed okay you're a sales manager you got five reps uh on on your org chart and you know you, you either you know you have three in the seat and two are empty or you know you rush the hires and you put two C players in the in the open seats um you know like if you're not interviewing uh, for talent all the time. And when you have an opening, getting it filled quickly with a talented person, you know, that's the death uh, spiral for uh, for a leader. So, you know, you can't, you can't get it done at less than 100% capacity. Um, and that's whether the seats are empty or the seats are full with the wrong people. Um, that's probably the biggest one, John. And then, um, you know, the, the other one is bottlenecking your team. Um, if, if you're trying to do the, the job of your people, um, you know, there's only one of you and there's five or six or eight of them, 
um, you're you're bottlenecking your team and you're not getting the benefits of uh, of productivity. So um, you know, so that's kind of like the control freak bottleneck, um, and, and the person who's understaffed uh, or or you know under talent. Uh, they're not they're not a good judge of talent, or they can't attract the right talent. Um, impossible to be successful in either one of those, and those are probably the the two biggest derailers I've ever seen. It's funny when I was going to ask you this question, the number one thing I had underneath there was recruiting. Yeah. Cause that's the one that I've seen when people can't recruit. It's either a sign that, you know, no one really wants to work for them or they just can't judge the talent that's underneath them, which means that they can't actually ever, if they were a good leader, can't really develop the person. So they're never going to be a great leader because great leaders help develop their people. Right. So, or like you said, they, 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 they don't always recruit. The end of the quarter's coming. They have one or two openings, and they try to stuff two C players in there. And they're not doing them. They're not helping themselves at all. Maybe they're, you know, alleviating some pressure from their leadership to fill the fill the holes. But they basically just sign their death warrant. Right? Like <laughs> they're just gonna fail because they're not gonna make the number. So you've seen that story so many times, and I have too. So the people that are listening. You got to always be recruiting and you always got to be recruiting A players. And if you're not, not doing that, you're not doing yourself a favor. Yeah. I, I always looked at recruiting, like it's, it's probably your most important sell. Like you're, you know, look at your biggest deal and hiring a great salesperson. If you're a manager is way more important than your, your most important deal, because that person is going to affect dozens of deals. Um, And if they don't make it, probably going to set you back for a year because it's going to take you nine months to figure out that they're not making it. And then you're going to replace them and you're going to have a ramp up on the next person. So, you know, that's when you should really be turning on your charm. That's when you should really be selling is landing that great prospect. And when I'm, when, when I was involved in who's going to be a manager or not, I'm always looking at that person saying, is this person persuasive enough to get a great person to leave their career and come work for them? Would somebody quit their job, go to their spouse and say, I'm ending this job and starting this job because of this person. Like that's a, that's a pretty high bar. And if you get that person, you know, and if you have that person in volume, you're going to go for a nice, good run somewhere. Yeah. I used to do the same thing, Kevin. I used to think, you know, okay, this leader that I'm bringing in, certainly they can sell. Certainly they know the domain. Certainly they, they can present, they can, they have all the skills to sell, but who are they going to recruit? Like, who's going to be on their team? That's my number one thing. Like, to your point, if they can't recruit, you know, what am I going to end up with? Five to seven people that I may have to get rid of later because they can't recruit? So, yeah, that's a big telltale sign. I agree. Hey, Kevin, over the last 20 years, you've seen ups and downs in the economy. And now, you know, right now, most people would say that the economy is pretty tight. You have any advice for the young salespeople and young leaders out there doing anything different in these times, or doing I things think- that they should should have been doing in the past, but they definitely need to do it now? Yeah, you, you um, first off, um, you got to stay at it. Um, like you know, it's it's tough. It's tougher for, for, you know, some parts of the market than others, but it's, it's generally speaking, it's kind of tough for everybody right now. Um, deals are getting more scrutiny. We all, we all, 
We all know this. CFOs are being tight with the spend. They'll spend if there's a clear value proposition um, and a quantifiable return. But they're not going to let people buy technology for technology's sake because the money's just not freewheeling right now. Um, so, you know, all the things that people talk about that are well documented, John, about like having a good value prop, tying it to the business impact of the customer, making sure there's quantifiable return, like basically good selling. And then the, the second thing is, you know, stay at it. Like sales is so much about, um, you know, dealing with rejection. And if you're, you know, even in the good times, you're dealing with a fair amount of rejection. In the tougher times, you're dealing with more rejection. If you let that get you down and then all of a sudden your activity starts to get lower because you're kind of like, ah, you know what? It's so hard anyway. Why should I go on more calls? You got to fight that that um, temptation and you just got to sell through it, you know, like, uh, you know, that maybe that one extra meeting you go on is going to be the deal that you get that gets you to your number, right? So like, don't don't retract and lick your wounds because it's tough. You got to stay in the game and just persist. And, uh, you know, tough times, um, you know, are really made for tough people. And uh, they're the ones who are going to come out the other side and be, uh, you know, and, and, and be better for it. We, we've been through these cycles. And, uh, you know, every every time we hit some tough times, people shed, get shedded and some of them leave the industry. Uh, but the ones who have the great careers are the ones who persist and just find a way to grind through. You got to grind. Yeah. And those those that's where the lessons are learned, too. When you're grinding like that, you find a way and you find a way and you develop a new skill or a new new knowledge area. And then you, you, now you can do things differently that make you a lot better at your position. What about the leaders? What do you think they should do differently with their people as that you t- talked about re- just now, like where the people might be getting down, they need to grind, they need to get through it. They need to stay positive, optimistic. Any advice for any of the leaders that on how they should manage their teams a little differently? Yeah. Uh, I think communication is always important, but especially now, like really know your people, um, you know, understand, um, what, what their challenges are, you know, try to help them. Like it's, it's sometimes you don't realize when you're an individual contributor, you, you think, Oh, my boss has the big job. It must be easy for them. It's, it's even harder for them. Right. So like if you're a leader, you have to fight those same tendencies I was talking about with your team. And, you know, I talked early John about like optimism, leaning into the optimism and trying to keep a level of positivity. So, you know, in a, in a realistic and honest way, you know, lean into that optimism and communicate, um, you know, more than ever with your team and just, you know, be honest with them, shoot straight with them, but like keep them in the game. Like your, your job as a leader is to get the best out of everybody. And so, you know, sometimes that's a matter of, you know, just listening to people and supporting them, but, you know, we got to see this through to get to the other side. Let's talk about, um, you know, during these tighter times, you know, are there any KPIs or indicators that you watch more carefully than than in good times that kind of tell you whether or not things are getting better or getting worse with your sales force? Or yeah. do you the same parameters and you know by the same parameters whether or not things are getting better or worse? Yeah, I mean, we like a lot of companies now, we, we really scrutinize the pipeline. Um, and you know, the quality of the pipeline is a big deal. And so I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of analytical tools that are out there, but you, you, you got to leverage those to understand 
is this pipeline real? Is it stale stuff that just keeps kicking from quarter to quarter that we're, we're fooling ourselves? Or are people actually adding net new incremental pipeline tied to real deals? You, you know, so like uh, making sure that uh, that everybody is adding and, and finding new opportunities and building more, not just kind of fooling themselves and you know, pretending to work on the stuff that, you know, at this point looks like it's never going to happen. So I I think pipelines always have to be uh, fresh and they have to be real. And uh, the two things that I always um, obsess about, John, are I want the stuff in the pipeline that's really dead weight, that's no longer active out. And I want the real stuff that people are working on that they haven't put in the pipeline yet that's on some list on the desk in. So it's like, how do we take out the fake stuff? How do we get in the real stuff? Know what we're dealing with and put our energy there. And 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 and, and by the way, all these things are activity based. Like no pipeline gets generated if there's not activity, you know, customer engagement, meetings, conversations, events, you know, all those things that get people talking and create opportunities. And will you change any investments based upon what you see in times like this in different regions? of the world, you know, where you might say, okay, I know that this region's doing a lot better. The KPIs are telling me they're getting better. The pipeline's looking better. I'm going to flip a couple of my maybe hiring plans or, or investments totally. in a different region. Yeah. Yeah, totally. You, you know, the, the, the way we've scaled uh, service now was always like, we're going to put some chips on the table. Um, and then the ones that, you know, yield some results, that's where we're going to lean in more. And uh, and the places where, you know, we've put some chips on the table, I, you know, when I say chips on the table, that might be a sales team and a, a bunch of systems engineers. Uh, they're not getting the results that they're getting. You know, it's it's always kind of been this thing like, hey, we have four reps and four SCs in this market, but the TAM's huge. You know, my opinion has always been great. Get those four reps productive and then we'll start putting in more to get that huge TAM. But like TAM in and of itself with some people who are not being productive yet doesn't yeah. doesn't warrant more investment. And uh, and I think that kind of um, attitude is more important than ever now. So everybody really should be looking at where are we getting results? Lean in there where we're not getting results. Is it a talent thing or is it a market thing? And uh, yeah, don't be throwing precious resources on markets or products that are unlikely to get a return. Right. You can see the productivity growing. You can see the pipeline growing. You can see the average deal size is growing. And then that gives you a lot of confidence. Go ahead and feed that area. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just a judgment game. It's, it's kind of, you know, I love all the analytics and the amount of innovation that's happened in the sales game. Um, and if you're not taking advantage of those insights and using it to help you make good judgment, you know, then then why even have them, right? So like you gotta you gotta be um, putting the bets where you have a, a a higher percentage chance of winning. Hey Kevin, I know that this subject's of great importance to your customer success. So, but I always wonder why in subscription times, you know, where there's renewals, and now even in consumption times, where a customer could leave you in in a week because they could just turn the light switch off basically and go somewhere else. Why so many software companies still seem to get it wrong? Like, why are they not investing? Are they still thinking of, you know, perpetual software where the customer bought it once and is stuck with it for a lifetime? 
Why do you think so many companies don't invest in in client success? Yeah, I, that's a head scratcher. I mean, what I what I like about the SaaS business and even more the consumer business is it's it's policing. It's like you know the days of a hit and run sales attitude are gone because like you know as soon as they're not consuming. They're either not renewing if it's SaaS or like you said, they're, they're turning it off if it's, if it's consumption. So like the, the rules of the game have changed. You have to deliver value. You have to get seats consumed and you you have to have customers using, using your product if you want to ring the cash register. So it's all about getting customers to consume and getting them to value. And, uh, you know, in most organization, that means some level of resources dedicated to customer success. And what, uh, what type of changes are you seeing in CS? Are you seeing, what are you seeing companies doing differently or what is, what, what would you do differently? Yeah. You know, for us, we're, we're putting um, human resources to it. We're also kind of productizing it, right? So, you know, we have, we have our success um, product is called impact and it's not just, you know, two people, three people, four people, customer success managed to look after your account. It's actually a technology platform that shows people their usage. It shows people their um, their value, their business value assessment um, through a, an online portal, right? So it's a combination of people resources, but also technology to really uh, tell you about the health of your environment and your return. And, you know, there's this there's this kind of fear like, oh, what if somebody looks at the business value assessment and they find out they're not getting some business? It's like, well, that's that's good. That's more opportunity to help them get to value. So when the renewal's up, you're not going to get a downsell or a non-renewal. Like the, 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 uh, the transparency that's available now for customers on how they're doing and how they're consuming is a must. And you have to embrace it. You're not going to trick customers into thinking they're getting a return. Because, you know, they're going to scrutinize everything, especially now when things are tighter. So, you know, just just deal with the reality and be proactive about trying to help your customers, you know, get the return. Um, and then that's also just good selling, right? Like the first project that fails or doesn't get to value is probably the last project you do with that account. Because right. there's a lot of ways to skin the cat. And uh, there's no one company that has... Uh, a monopoly on all the good ideas on how to help their business. So you got to make sure you continue to earn your right to solve the customer's next problem. And that's what will consume more licenses or that's what will, you know, get the consumption uh, register ringing again. So Kevin, the um, product that you talked about at ServiceNow, that's where you built like instrumentation or telemetry into the software where you can see what the customers are doing with the product and you can, know when to call them to to give them support there's that but there's also a technology platform for the customers that that has a number of things embedded in it including like automatic business value assessments um health environments and then there's a people element to it too where you know we can use some of those insights and say hey we ran a health scan and we understand that you know your environment you know is 80% here where it could be 100 or 40% there we want to work with you on a plan, um, you know, to to optimize and get better. So it, it it's all about kind of proactively helping customers make sure that they are getting the most efficient environment that's producing the biggest return, and then 
what customer wouldn't love that, right? Like proactive assessment of where they stand, honest results. And then, you know, that's what customers ask for. I've, I've heard over and over for years, we want you to be prescriptive. We want you to lead us. You guys are the experts, share your benchmarking, share your best practices and point out to us when we're not doing the right thing or our part. And, uh, and that's a pretty high bar, but that's what customers want. And if you can get them that, then you're going to be a partner that they're going to, you know, invest in more and use to solve their business problems. So, Kevin, I've had you for about an hour and I want to thank you for that. And I just want to ask you one final question before we because uh, I want to respect your time. Any early thoughts on how AI may affect the sales position? Maybe this is just too far out there or too futuristic for you. So if you say, yeah, John, I, I have no idea. That's fine because I have no idea. So I thought I'd ask you. Yeah. Uh, well, you and I are both involved in stage two and um, they had a, a meeting at MIT last month that was really interesting. And there was some crazy uh, out there ideas, you know, by design. Uh, and there was one theory you know, the co-piloting of AI. So an AI to helping like somebody early in their career actually be better. And, and uh, you know, hey, is there a way to take a low level early in career, uh, low paid employee and augment what they do with AI and have them do the same thing that a senior enterprise person who's very expensive does? Uh, and would that tip, you know, uh, the whole sales industry upside down? What if AI is being used to make the purchase and now AI is talking AI? I, you know, I, I think these things are kind of intriguing and interesting, but at my core, I, I still believe that sales is a people business and p- relationships are important because it, it comes down to trust. Remember I was talking about yes. talk about trust. You know, I, I personally find it hard to believe that um, an AI is going to build trust. I think it can give information and it can automate things, but, you know, people are going to stay in the game um, to make sure that relationships are built and things happen and that people can trust. And and these tools, I believe are just going to help us all increase our productivity and it's going to be good for the economy in that it's going to kick in, you know, more efficiencies. And that's always been good for the economy. So I'm, I'm i I'm an optimist on this stuff. I think it's going to help us all be better and more efficient humans. And I'm not, I'm not really uh, the I robot, you know, the, 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 the AI is going to take over and uh, we're going to be working for them, but you know, hopefully I'm right. We'll see. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. The more that things change, the more in some ways to what you're saying, things stay the same because, you know, sales is a people business and that's, that's really not going to change. I remember when we had the emergence of the internet in the early two thousands and I was, changing jobs. I went to talk to a whole bunch of VCs and they all told me, John, enterprise sales is dead. You're an enterprise sales leader. Enterprise sales is dead. <laughs> that was 20 years ago, right? Right. Because what people sales do is go to thriving. the website and buy the stuff. Yes, exactly. And I used to say to them, I can't understand how they're going to go buy like 10 or $20 million worth of software off the internet. I don't know how that's going to happen. So to your point, the more they the more things change, the more they stay the same. It'll probably AI will probably make salespeople, you know, just a lot more productive. So, agree. Kevin Haverty, that hour went by really quick. Thank you so much. I'm sure all our listeners 
gained a lot of information from you. So thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast. Yeah, John, thanks for having me on um, your podcast. And it's an honor to be on it. And uh, hopefully we got some people uh, thinking out there. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. Thank you.